Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I sit down with distinguished guests to discuss the most interesting topics related to the human condition. These guests share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. If you enjoy our conversations, please feel free to share these stories far and wide. How can technology make us more empathetic? What shape and form does that take? How can such technologies help us find a sense of oneness in a divided world? These are the questions that Gabo Aurora and I tackled during this episode of Stories of Transformation. Gabo Aurora is an adventurous humanitarian, a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and a former UN diplomat, but he found his calling when discovering the immersive technologies of virtual reality, augmented reality, and artificial intelligence. Specifically, these technologies give the viewer a feeling like they're actually there, whether it's in the refugee camp, in the midst of a war zone, or in the wake of a natural disaster. For example, Gabo shares his first VR film, Clouds Over Sidra, which depicts what life is like for a young 12-year-old girl in the midst of a Jordanian refugee camp with 80,000 other Syrian refugees. This film brought tears to audiences all across the globe, and it led Gabo on the path of making more immersive films that would tell the most important stories of our time. These immersive technologies could quite literally be described as empathy machines. These machines allow us to find our common humanity with people we've never met all across the globe. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation. If you do, please take the liberty and share it far and wide. And as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So without further delay, I bring you Gabo Aurora. Gabo Aurora, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I think you're doing incredible work as it pertains to VR and AR and the storytelling techniques that you're using as it pertains to immersive technologies to really shed light on what's going on around the world. But the way I'd like to kind of start this conversation is by asking you, like I ask all my guests, how would you kind of define, in your own words, who you are? I would define who I am as an artist, a professor, and a creative technologist. It changes whenever I have to think about who I am. I have to really think. So the the answer does change because it's many things, but that's how I feel today. Yeah, and you have a really curious origin story. You're from New York, Jackson Heights in particular. Your parents were refugees. They're from Pakistan, then found refuge in New Delhi and came to the United States with your sisters. Then you, you were the first person in your family to be born in America. And so those dynamics must have been super interesting in terms of how they shaped you and the cultural dynamic that was different between you and your sisters and the language component. But you actually have a really interesting story about about your father, and I was curious to know if you could share that right now. Yeah. My father became disabled when I was four or five, uh, where he was no longer able to, to work, and we had to deal with some very difficult times where my mother would always tell me the story of her breaking down in the line for the welfare line, you know, having to apply for welfare and everything like that. And then how she just couldn't do it, you know. And that was kind of like like an origin myth where, you know, yes, we were in need, but 
we were going to figure it out in a different way. And so my mother, um, you know, began to, to work and to support us while my father was getting medical treatment. And uh, my father was one of the first people um, in 1984 to get a kidney transplant. And that was uh, momentous and miraculous. And I remember as a child, the first time he got a call for the kidney, you know, you're at home, you're waiting. You don't know if the call is going to come. He refused to go to the hospital. He was too scared, you know? And it was like this thing where he had to do this very foreign technological thing that was supposed to, it felt like science fiction, you know? And then, um, yeah, and then the second time, my mother convinced him that, you know, that he wanted, didn't he want to see me grow up and didn't he want to be with the kids and he should like, you know, have the courage. And he did it. And my father found out who the person was, where the kidney came from. And it was, it was a Jewish construction worker who was 27 years old and fell off the top of a building, you know? And, uh, my dad was, um, you know, like a typical immigrant New Yorker, slightly anti-Semitic. And I would always, you know, he would, whenever he would make slightly anti-Semitic comments, I'd say, but your kidney's Jewish. Yeah. Like you got it. <laughs> I was like, oh, don't he, don't, you know, uh, so, uh, and he would actually find that to be very funny. So that was good. Right, right, right. I'm glad to hear that. What a lovely story about your father. And you know what you were kind of saying is like, it brought up this idea of, you know, sometimes in our memory, our parents' stories, although that we don't remember them, they become our stories, right? It's almost as though we adopt the stories in which they tell us as though they're our own. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah. Well, it's just the power of story, you know? It's the power of, of it in, in kind of shaping your destiny, what you do and everything. So, yeah, I was always, you know, very, very attracted to that. And because I think it, in, in oral cultures, like in the East and Indian culture, it, it really is, that's how things stay alive, you know, and that's, and it's repeated. But honestly, I never got tired of those stories, you know, because it would be, it would make me feel connected to a kind of identity that, I think there's no other way. There's something about the repetition and the embellishment and the kind of way of dealing with it. And I loved it. I mean, there's a story of my father. Uh, my father went on to do a master's at, at NYU um, in, in engineering, and he was still working in the candy store. Then he would work as a security guard, and he would work on like a top skyscraper. And, you know, it's the story of him kind of sitting in like, you know, because everyone's gone, so then he would just kind of sit in an office and look out over the skyline and see these other buildings. And he noticed one day that there was somebody in the building in front of him um, also studying. And so my father at that point was like, I must study very hard. You know, I'm not going to get up if this person doesn't get up, because if he's studying, then I should be studying. Until he realized that it was just his own reflection, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh oh my god i love that that's so good oh that's so good i feel like your dad and my dad need to meet that's hilarious oh gosh 
And so you have a you have a really interesting kind of trajectory after that, right? So you end up going to NYU, you end up going to Los Angeles. You weren't really studying film, but you knew that you wanted to be into storytelling. And it didn't work out. Like there's something that didn't jive with you. That's kind of how you talk about it. And so that led you on a trip that led to another trip that led to another trip where you were pretty much abroad for about a decade doing humanitarian work in far off places across the world, uh, in conflict zones, in, in places that have been devastated by natural disasters. And you were out there in the field. And so what exactly brought you back and, and how did you kind of find yourself in this space where you were like doing filmmaking? How did that all happen? I realized um, after a, a trip to France that um, my French girlfriend was pregnant. And so I realized I had to, you know, get serious and figure this out. And so I, I was at the UN at the time and I just said, okay, I probably need something in New York because that'll be a bit more stable and we could have the baby in New York. And And then I ended up coming back to New York from Haiti at that time. And getting a job at headquarters, uh, working with the Secretary General's office in advocacy um, for the Millennium Development Goals. And that was, in, you know, I was willing to do whatever job. You know, I was just like, I'm having a baby. I don't care. I'll put on a suit. Even though I was more grassroots humanitarian, um, I was excited by what I could learn from headquarters. And, and you know, but, you know, it's a different it's a different world in, in, in New York at the UN. It's much more political. It's much more formal. Um, and I did that. And at some point, I think at that moment, I probably had a midlife crisis. I probably had some sort of crisis that... Really? Well, wow. it's kind of like when you kind of hit what you think is the pinnacle of what it could be, right? Um, a very high-powered job as a senior advisor to the Secretary General. I was very, very happy to have a child, and it was very beautiful. An apartment in New York, and it's just, you know, you kind of hit all these measures of success, I guess, you know, in, in some ways. It just something gnawed at me, and I think what gnawed at me was, well, what about the creative dreams I had? Like, you know, like, yeah, this is cool, but let's be honest, it still has an element of bureaucracy. And like I could lie to myself about the impact in some ways because the UN as a whole, obviously it's different than, you know, working in the private sector or other things. Like it has a rhetoric that is quite grandiose, but I could kind of see through some of that because I just felt it wasn't the same as me working on the ground, you know? And I I just thought, okay, we, we want to advocate for these things. And it's the same boring formula that I ghostwrite an op-ed for the Secretary General. We call George Clooney to, like, talk about this sort of idea. And that's it, you know? Like, And then we write a report nobody reads, you know? And keep doing that. At some point, you realize that the world was changing. All this, you know, YouTube and Brendan Stanton of Humans of New York, who at that time had more followers than all of the UN social media accounts combined and far more engagement as someone who was just on the street taking pictures of people. And that was actually interesting because I, you know, you talk about transformation. I, I think I, I think it was at that moment that I just said, if I don't do something now, 
this is not going to end up great. You know, I'll hate myself. You know? Right, right. And so it was that moment where you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to throw myself at something creative. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't think, it, I think it's, I think you can never lie to yourself, right? And I think I had always had a very strong sort of bullshit detector. And I knew it was a good lifestyle. I knew it was a good life. You know, I was providing for my family. But something about it made me feel, especially because the Syrian war was starting to, you know, this is around 2013, 2014. I could tell, and a lot of people, that this was a serious, serious thing that was happening. And I could see the inaction of not only the international community, but at that time, to be fair, the UN as well. And I, I just was like, what, how am I, what am I going to tell in the future? What would I tell my kids as the world was burning? What did I do? I just went out to these lunches, you know, I had a drink at the delegates lounge, you know. I mean, it, it, it required me to make a serious sort of question. I think it depends on what your own, your value system is. Some people are fine doing that. But I knew that I had to at least try to do something big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what did you do? I just said, let me try different ways of using new technologies to tell stories. Let me see. Let me see if this will be better advocacy. And that's what led me on my path to found UNVR and to kind of work with new technologies at the UN with some of my initial work as a storyteller and as a creative technologist. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I can tell you the first time that I experienced VR was absolutely mind-blowing. When I heard about virtual reality, without even having done it, I was like, this is it. This is the technology that well, finally, because it's the power of being there. It's witnessing. It's feeling. It breaks down the barrier between them and us in a way, even though you are in a headset and you're doing it, but you can be eye to eye with them. You can walk with them. You can have dinner with them. And in some ways, it provides an engagement that I think is probably not even possible in the real world. Really? Tell us, say more about that. Well, well, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I, the reason I chose to do the first VR film I did, Clouds of Residra in a Refugee Camp, is I was tasked at the Secretary General's office to basically work with the new prime, at that time, the new prime minister of Norway, Erna Solberg. Uh, Erna had just become elected as prime minister. And her background was where she was a union leader and she had basically mostly lived only in Norway. She had never been to the African continent. She had never been anywhere. All of a sudden, you know, if you're the prime minister of Norway, you inherit a humanitarian portfolio and an investment portfolio in the region that's unparalleled. Some of the best, right? Some of the, some of the best sort of ways. And my job is, I love it, it's absurd. My job was to educate her about her investments and what was going on. So I had to take her on a trip to Africa, right? 
So we had to, I had to organize a three-country trip, South Africa, Malawi, Rwanda, and we had to go in her private jet and basically her entourage and go and try to get her to understand what was happening there. And it was impossible. The hierarchy is too much. The difference is too much. It was impossible for her. We tried so many times to have her have real conversations with people and to understand what people were. But it was a, when we landed in Malawi, they greeted us at dinner with all these school children who had memorized the Norwegian national anthem. Yeah, yeah. So, so what you're saying, Gabo, is that the difference was too much such that it was one directional. It wasn't a reciprocal relationship. It was more about them appeasing to the UN versus the UN actually seeing them for who they were. That's what you're kind of getting at, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but but it was the it was a real impetus to be like, we need to create a way that gets people to understand these people and let them speak, you know? And at that point, you know, because it was in virtual reality and it was new, um, I always say I, I became a filmmaker at the UN, which is really ironic, but I would use Tarkovsky and Abbas Kuryastami as my models because I was like, they too were operating under repressive regimes, you know, that were trying to censor them and trying to get them to do propaganda, right? Same thing at the UN. If I would have put this on YouTube, forget about it. It would have been death by a thousand bureaucratic cuts, right? Even then, when I had to kind of do it, they wanted it to be that this is what the UN does. Make it about child marriage. Show some UN person doing that. Show them, you know, basically more with the donor in mind as the audience, rather than it just being a universal story, a, a story about the person. Yeah, I totally understand. So really quickly, tell us about your film, Clouds Over Sidra. Clouds Over Sidra is about a 12-year-old girl, uh, Sidra, who it's a day in the life of the camp. Like not a lot happens, right? But I, like, half the people cry watching it, right? Even though not a lot happens because you can feel what it could feel like to be in that situation, right? And you feel the sense of limbo. But what you feel the most is that when you're 12 years old, you are transitioning from innocence to loss of innocence, right? You are not believing and you, it's dawning on her that maybe she'll never go home, right? But a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, it's different. You can kind of lie to them. They can lie, you know, they can kind of go through all of that kind of fantasy. And then that inner journey, I think, being caught in virtual reality, I just said, yes, finally, there's something here that's capturing the nuance capturing the dignity and is able to communicate what I feel about these people who, yes, they're not like us because I live in America and there are all these things. But when you're on the ground, you are in awe of their, of their resilience and their strength and how much they have to teach us and how we should humble ourselves to just live in their world and just listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. The way I kind of think about virtual reality and immersive technologies is, I think of them as empathy machines. And the reason I say that's because the first time that I experienced a VR film was Alejandro's and Artio's film entitled Carne y Arena, which means flesh and sand. It was a film where you literally experienced what it was like to traverse the American border between the United States and Mexico and try to find your way 
into the United States through the desert. And along this path that, that people would take, literally based in reality, you'd see shoes of children, clothes that were left aside, bodies. And at the end of this virtual reality experience, the Border Patrol would essentially swarm you with their helicopters and their guns. And they would literally capture you. And the whole thing was terrifying. The whole thing was terrifying. The experience felt real. The, the terror felt real. And so for me, after that experience, I thought to myself, virtual reality quite literally is an empathy machine. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're just getting started. You know, my most recent experience is dealing with child welfare and racial bias, where, you know, a lot of social workers who, whether they go into a white family or a black family, how they interpret, you know, someone raising their voice or if their house is messy or what they do, really affects the decisions they make, you know, in, in a lot of ways. In that sort of experience, we use uh, natural language processing, where you have to ask questions. You are the social worker sitting across the table from someone, and you have to ask questions and have to get answers. And I realized when there's agency, you know, there are many types of VR, right? There's 360 that can be very passive, but now there's 360 that allows you to interact with it. And then there's room scale VR where you can walk around an experience, you know, and my experience that was commissioned by Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation on the Holocaust, you know, you walk around the concentration camps. It's this harrowing feeling of see and feel, and then have the survivor be right there with you telling him what happened to his parents. There's nothing, there's nothing like it. And it is the technology, but it's the storytelling that merges with it. Because Remember, it's, if it's virtual reality, I can't do all the grammar of the flat medium that's taken a hundred years of the close-up and the jump cut and everything else that we use. That doesn't exist in the same way. That's the kind of key. And that's what excites me, is that we have to find a new grammar of telling a story within it. No one's really done that. It's happening now. There is an amazing community of people working in it, that is the reason that has attracted me to this, because you feel like probably what the Impressionists felt like or people in Paris felt like writing, like it's, it's just this incredible experimenting and coming up with a new way to deal with a form. And throughout artistic sort of history, through all art movements, it's always a, a new technology comes up, right? And then storytellers figure out a new way the Impressionists, it was the Industrial Revolution that allowed them to have tin paint that allowed them to leave the studio. The paint wouldn't dry. Paint could stay okay and they could go out into nature. Now, when they went out into nature, they could have used that opportunity to be mobile, to make realistic paintings of the scene, but they didn't. Why? Because photography was on the scene and photography was their version of what we're dealing with AI in some ways, right? Because there, there was this machine that was going to put artists out of business, you know? Because they were like, do we even need people to do portraits? Because we have pictures, right? So they were like, what can a human do? Impressionism. 
It was this thing that was a response to both using the technology, figuring out something that would respond to the times against the mechanization of representation. So I think that is what is fascinating. Paperbacks, similarly, you know, serializing contents in newspapers is what led to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky writing. They, they didn't mean to write a really long book that no one can read, you know? They were, you were supposed to read them every week, you know, because they're coming out in certain ways. Dickens, all that stuff, you know? So I think that's how we have to look at what's happening with these new technologies and storytelling. And that's what excites a lot of the creators in it. Um, and that's what excites me and gets me up in the morning and be like, what, what new toy do I have to play with today? And how can we tell a good story with it? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so Gabo, where do you think this technology and this culmination of technology and storytelling is actually going to take us? Like, where exactly are we going this? How deep will we go down this path and, and help us better understand, like, you know, as a visionary creative artist, what is the path forward here? I think where we're going is there's a merger of both, but they're unlike either. You know, it's not a film and it's not a game, but it has elements of both. And, and I think that's starting to happen, honestly, in certain games are starting to realize that they can kind of play and merge with that. But I think in general, I think that is where things are going, where the mechanics of games and the emotion of films kind of come with this new way of telling stories and understanding them. I think that's what's going to make it. It's going to be a more of a spatial understanding of how one engages with these things. So it is, it is in its nascency, but the technology is moving at breakneck speed. Like there are incredible things that are happening, you know, every month that if you pay attention to, you can see where it can go and what it could be used for. This is where it's very fascinating. I'm doing um, some research around computer vision uh, using the Syrian Civil War footage from YouTube where you can search things with roses and happy faces, but then you realize that you have to like interpret what happiness is. And is it a meadow? Is it what, what do you do and how that comes across and how you can tag archives of things to come at us in different ways? So I think, you know, a lot of it is going to be you know, merging not only the spatial and kind of wondrous nature of virtual and augmented reality, but also when it merges with machine learning and artificial intelligence, um, it's going to be dramatically interesting. I mean, virtual beings already, you know, are, are fascinating, like where you can have a conversation with a character and each conversation is different based on what you ask. And I, I, and I am doing something like that, but you could imagine that how this could be the future of friendship. I know that sounds scary, but, you know, for a lot of children, you know, we all had imaginary friends, you know, and now it's like you actually can have a different way of interacting. It obviously comes with its own dystopian challenges. That's how things are and they work. But I think it shows you that there's just so much happening that if you get involved to kind of experiment with, I think you not only learn about the technology, you learn about it through the lens of something that's the most human element, which is stories and telling stories. And that's kind of what I try to say that, you know, I think one should become techno literate no matter what they do. But I think it's a lot more motivating when you have to do it to try to express yourself in some ways, you know, and I think it's just easier. It's just 
better and it's more satisfying to do that. Yeah, Gab, all this is super fascinating. And it's really great to have your perspective because given your life story and your life's work, you really are trying to share the stories of people that need their stories to be heard in far off places all over the globe that kind of really demonstrate in my, in my view that we actually are more similar than we are different. And your work and through VR and through immersive technologies, it really takes away this, this separation, and this divide that, you know, these people are the other. No, in fact, we are very much similar to them and they're very much similar to us. So I just want to plant a flag there because I think your, your purpose is fantastically inspirational. So as we kind of close here, I'd like to ask all my guests one final question, Gabo, and it's, uh, it's this, you know, what's your message for the world? I guess my message to the world would be, I remember, you know, 2020 was ending and people would be like, oh, worst year ever, you know, what a horrible year. I was like, what about 2014? What about what happened then? You know, what about 2003, March 19th? Why should we be so provincial? Why don't we kind of try to learn from the rest of the world and empathize with different ways of being? Like why, why should we think last year was the worst ever? Why? Because we suffered as Americans? Like, get out of here. We're a human race. We're together. And we should use it as a wake-up call to really, truly be international and learn from the rest of the world even if they have a lower GDP than us. Yeah, I think that's great. Gabo, thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for being the light in the darkness, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, and as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi digital marketing by Catherine Ahn, artwork by Mashida Hadi, and theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.